Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, August 24th. Today marks six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. So who else would I talk to on this grim anniversary than Julia Yaffe, who gives us a state of play on the war and some of the recent psychological victories that Ukraine has inflicted against Vladimir Putin and the Russian people. And later, Bill Cohan is here to talk about the drama over at Disney, with activist investor Dan Loeb announcing a big stake in the media giant and asking for sweeping changes. Will ESPN make the cut or be spun off? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Today is the six-month anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And because it is the six-month anniversary of that dark day, I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. Hi. I want to ask you, are you surprised that it's actually reached six months? Originally, everybody predicted that this would be a cakewalk for the Russians and that they would conquer the country very quickly and that then there would be this long insurgent wave afterwards. But actually, what ended up happening is that the Russians messed up. Everybody overestimated the Russians and everybody underestimated the Ukrainians. And once the war wasn't won within a few days and within a week or two, then it was clear that it was going to be a long, drawn-out war, which is to say that originally, yes, would have been surprised, but then no, not surprised. Can you give us a state of play on where we're at? Is Kyiv safely under Ukrainian control? What parts of the country does Russia have? Is one on offense and one on defense, or is it purely a stalemate? What's the situation in total? Uh, It's a bit of both. It's a bit of a stalemate in parts of the Donbass, where the Russian army has basically lost what momentum it was able to get at the beginning of the summer. And then the Ukrainians started going on basically on offense. And it's not the large counteroffensive that they've been talking about, but they've started pushing back, that they're not just defending territory. They're also pushing back, especially in the South. And they've made it a point to try to take the city of Kherson. And it seems like they're being quite successful there. They have using HIMARS, these long-range artillery rockets that the U.S. government has provided to the Ukrainian army. They have been able to target bridges behind the city so that they're cutting off the Russian army from its supply lines, making the Russians pull back further and further, making their supply lines stretch longer and longer, which makes it harder and harder to sustain. And then even further to the south, you have Crimea, where you have more and more things exploding. And usually these are military objects that are getting blown up. These are artillery caches. But what it has done, you see this a lot on social media, is you see Russians who were vacationing in Crimea because it's August. It's still prime vacation time. They don't feel safe there anymore. They had come to think that, okay, the fighting would maybe be in the Donbass, maybe it would be in Kharkiv and in Kiev, but it certainly wouldn't be in Crimea that after 2014, Crimea is Russian and everybody basically in the world, including the Ukrainians, had basically come to accept it. And the Ukrainians said, fuck that. We're going to bring the war to you. They've been hitting places all over Crimea. Basically, at this point, every single county, the equivalent of a county in Crimea, has been hit. There's also places on the Russian mainland that border Ukraine that have been hit 
with more and more frequency. And the residents of these regions are also starting to freak out. And their leadership is telling them, you know, starting to put in limitations on people's movement. The Ukrainians are bringing the war home to Russians. To that point, on Saturday evening, uh, right outside of Moscow, Daria Dugina, who is a 29-year-old commentator on Russian Nationals TV, died when a remote-controlled explosion blew up her SUV. She is the daughter of Alexander Dugin, who is a right-wing supporter of Vladimir Putin. And there are questions about whether he was meant to be targeted. Anyway, Russia is blaming Ukrainian intelligence for pulling this off. And I guess after the first few weeks, especially of this war, I didn't. I started not to doubt Ukrainian will in any way. I did not expect or think even that Ukrainian intelligence was active inside Russia. Is that true? Is Russia using this as like a false flag kind of thing? Is Or is UK probably behind this? The short answer is we don't know. And I think it'll be a while before we know. The slightly longer version is, um, you know, Occam's razor just tends to warp and bend when it gets to Russia. It doesn't really, really work as well. We should say that Daria Dugina is not, you know, a babe in the woods. Like her father, who is not just some political philosopher, as some American conservatives on Twitter have been saying that he's just a philosopher. No, no, he is a philosopher the way Goebbels was a philosopher. He created the idea of Ruski Mir, of the Russian world, which is now the policy being carried out and fought for and implemented by Putin's armies in Ukraine. This idea of a larger Russian-speaking, Russian ethnic Slavic empire that connects Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia in this pan-Slavic empire. That was his idea. It was picked up by the Kremlin. He has helped give it life. Daria was one of his most vocal messengers. She was a very active activist in his Eurasianist movement. She had a show not just on Russia Today, but on this network called Sargrad, which is a conservative Russian Orthodox imperial monarchist channel owned by the very religious Christian oligarch Konstantin Malafeev, who's one of the first people to get sanctioned back in 2014 because he was bankrolling the separatists on behalf of the Kremlin. She was on Russian TV saying that Ukrainians were subhuman. She was saying that the Russian army needs to be, quote unquote, less forgiving in Ukraine and use harsher tactics against the population. She advocated for purges within Russian society to purge it of opposition elements. So that's a little bit of background on her. As to what happened on Saturday night, it seems her father was the intended target and she was hit by mistake that he was supposed to also be in the car with her, but he got out and took another car. The fact that within two days, the FSB immediately comes out and says, we got him. Here's the woman who did it. She's Ukrainian. She came in to Russia through this border crossing. She did this. She rented an apartment here. She left through this border crossing. Two days, right? Like they still haven't found Boris Nemtsov's killer. Some murders are harder to solve in Russia than others. Then you have the added wrinkle. You have Ilya Panamarov, who is a former member of the Russian parliament, who is kind of Soviet Russian political royalty, who voted against the annexation of Crimea and immediately fell out of favor with the Kremlin and had to flee. He now lives in Ukraine. He now has this very vocal pro-Ukrainian position. And he came out and said, actually, no, this was not the work of the Ukrainian intelligence agencies. And by the way, the Ukrainians have denied that they were 
behind this. He says, no, this was the work of the National Republican Army, which is, he said, a Russian opposition group. And there had been zero mentions of this group online before he spoke them into being. Right. So he was claiming that he and this shadowy group of Russian opposition figures were behind this. And he said, yes, the woman that the FSB pointed to, he said, I'm not going to say she wasn't involved, but she wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, essentially. It's starting to get all kinds of messy and complicated. And then on top of that, I want to give you one more thing to think about that will just make it even messier for you. In September of 1999, right before Vladimir Putin was made Boris Yeltsin's successor, apartment buildings in Moscow started blowing up in the middle of the night. Putin at the time was the head of the FSB. He said these were Chechen terrorists and therefore we have to go into Chechnya and start a war. And this was the war that he rode into the Kremlin that turned him from this gray-faced functionary that nobody knew, that had no charisma. This war helped turn him into this decisive, virile man of action that every Russian saw on their screen all the time. At the time, there were doubts, but they've been growing stronger and stronger over the last 20-some years, is that those were bombs planted by the FSB. There were all this evidence piling up that this was actually an inside job by the FSB to help make Putin into this national figure. I was reading the AP wire earlier about this remote control car bombing, and it said bombings generally in Russia are extremely rare. All of that is to say, like, based on what we know about Putin and the FSB, like, it seems like they would be the most <laughs> logical people behind this. Maybe. I mean, there were bombings since the 90s. There were terrorist yeah. attacks in Moscow and in other parts of Russia that were quite big and terrible. I don't know. Maybe it is this weird Republican National Army of, like, Russian revolutionaries based in Ukraine or somewhere outside of Russia that have been wanting for years to topple Putin and think that what he's doing in Ukraine is criminal. There are plenty of those people. If before they were trying to maintain their independence and say like, no, no, we are Russian. We are Russian citizens. We are a Russian organization. We don't take money from the West. Now that they've been kicked out, gloves are off. A lot of them are taking money from foreign governments. They are taking money from Westerners. So suddenly their pockets have gotten a lot bigger. But my money's on the FSB. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's just to bring this conversation full circle and punctuate what I asked you earlier on. If Putin or the FSB executed this bombing, um, that is not the mark of a team that is on offense. That is a mark of a team that is trying to maybe shift the narrative, rally support. It does feel like something that would happen in the middle of a stalemate. Julia, thank you so much for not only breaking down the news, but also your huge historical insight into all of this, which is invaluable. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here with Ben Landy to help get inside what activist investor Dan Loeb is thinking over at Disney. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug 
for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy in the studio with Bill Cohan to talk about the recent Wall Street drama over at Disney. Bill, thanks for joining us. Hey, Ben, it's great to be here with you. So hedge fund manager Dan Loeb announced that his firm, Third Point, has taken a really big stake in Disney, which he's using to call for sweeping changes to everything from the composition of the board to strategies for cutting costs. And of course, there's this idea floating around of getting rid of ESPN, spinning it off into a new company, which we know from Dylan's reporting last fall, Bob Shapek has been thinking about for some time. But you actually know Dan Loeb, and you've been covering him for years. So before getting into his plans for Disney, what is your impression of Dan as a person and as an investor? Well, I don't want to get in trouble, of course, but Dan you know, is like any successful person. Is He's a billionaire, a billionaire hedge fund manager. So he's complicated. He's a very smart, very thoughtful, very decisive. One thing I think that sets him apart from hedge fund managers, activist hedge fund managers, if you think of like a Bill Ackman or Warren Buffett, sort of activist-ish hedge fund managers who like to buy and hold their positions until the pain gets really acute. Dan is much more nimble, trades in and out very quickly. Once he's made his point or his money, he's out. He doesn't need to stick around to make sort of a dramatic philosophical point, like say with Bill Ackman in Herbalife, who basically thought it was a quasi Ponzi scheme or a multi-level marketing scheme or was exploitive of people who shouldn't be exploited. And of course, he lost a billion dollars on the short. Dan also was involved in Herbalife on the long side, made some money and blew out. He wasn't there to any kind of political point. You know, this is his second go round with Disney. He invested in Disney as the pandemic was unfolding. And basically, Disney had to shut everything down. It shut down its parks. It shut down its cruise ships probably shut down a lot of its filmmaking activity. Movie theaters were closed. Its streaming service, which is now, of course, quite robust, was really in its infancy at that point. So the stock tanked and Dan bought in then and sort of made a killing, probably something like doubling his money. His position was worth $900 million. And so he, at that time, he basically pushed for Disney to step up its streaming facilities and services. And this time is a little bit different agenda. And he has about, I'd say roughly 750 million invested in Disney this time, taking advantage of the dip in the stock related to 
sort of the Netflix dips. And, you know, I think he feels pretty confident, you know, that he's once again going to make money, which I think that's really what he cares most about is making money for his investors, as as he should. That's his job as a hedge fund manager. All right. So Dan's back. He's got $750 million, a billion dollar stake in Disney, let's call it. If that's true, it's less than 1% of Disney's $200 billion plus market cap. So that affords him some leverage to make suggestions to Bob Chapek, the CEO, and to the board about things he would like to see happen, including shaking up the board itself. So what are some of the things that he is asking for from Disney? So I think if you sort of parse through it all, and knowing Dan as I do, I mean, he's he seems to be very focused on Disney's cost structure, which he feels is gotten out of hand and is the highest in the industry. He also seemed a little worried about Disney's $51 billion of debt, or a lot of which it got when it bought 20th Century Fox. Disney assumed more than $20 billion of, of Fox's debt. So, I mean, I think he thinks between cutting costs and paying down the debt, using some of the money saved from the cost cutting, as well as the free cash flow generated, that the Disney stock will, of course, go from 120, whatever it is now, to 240. It'll double, he'll double his money, and he'll get out. Again, being Dan and not trying to make a political point or a cultural point or a philosophical point, if it gets sort of 80% of the way there in a short period of time, he's going to get out. He makes a lot of points about what he would like Chapek to do. He wants to add two board members to the board. He wants them to revisit the idea of spinning off ESPN, but frankly, not because he doesn't see it as a big cash generator or that it might be better off as a public company, but I think he thinks you can load a certain amount of debt on it and reduce the Disney debt load. Again, getting back to his main concern about cutting costs and reducing the debt. If Chapek is willing to sort of lay out a vision for ESPN as to why he should keep it, I don't think Dan's going to go to the mat to have him spin it off. If you can use the free cash flow from ESPN to pay down debt, then Dan will be happy. Bill, do you think that people who love ESPN, who, who watch that channel and are obsessed with it, should be worried about the potential for Loeb to push Disney to load up the company with debt? When you say that, it sounds alarming. And you've also said Dan is a smart, sophisticated investor, but he's also a short-term thinker. He's looking at how this company evolves quarter to quarter. He's thinking about doubling his investment and getting out. What does it look like if Disney offloads debt to ESPN as part of a new structure and spins it out? Well, I think Dan Loeb would love that, whether that would leave ESPN hobbled by debt. I mean, if you think of an analogy might be, say, AT&T spinning off Warner Media and merging it into Discovery, creating Warner Brothers Discovery and loading it up with $55 billion of, of debt now, $52 billion of debt. I know they're sensitive about that. Is that too much debt for that company? Well, it was supposed to do $14 billion of EBITDA next year. Now it's hoping for 12 That's a lot of debt. Is it hobbling what Warner Brothers Discovery can do? I mean, I think in some ways it is, you know, obviously the elimination of CNN Plus, the elimination of Brian Stelter, the shelving of the Batgirl movie. I mean, these are things that, you know, you do to make a point about that you're serious about cost savings or things you do to signal to investors in the market that you're going to be serious about 
paying down debt. And it reduces, you know, let's face it, it reduces your operating flexibility. If they load up ESPN with too much debt and it falters, then, you know, there could be a concern about what ESPN can do now. And, you know, ESPN isn't nearly what it used to be either. I don't think its viewership is nearly what it used to be. I don't really see ESPN as a separately publicly traded company. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Dan is basically saying, pay down debt and reduce costs. Generate $10 billion of free cash flow a year. And you know what? He might well be gone well before any of those things happen. Yeah, well, however long Dan Loeb sticks around, we will be sticking around here, Puck, to see how it all plays out. Thanks, Bill. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 